This is your host, Caitlin Cook, and welcome back to another episode of the Dead Kate Bounce Experience. This week's guest is Simon Grunfeld. Simon is head of Web3 at Cogni, a banking platform that eliminates the friction between Web2 and Web3 via a seamless on and off ramp to help accelerate mass adoption. After all, that's what this entire podcast is about, bridging the gap between Web2 and Web3. The key differentiator in what Simon and Cogni are building is access. Unlike major crypto exchanges, Cogni gives users complete control over their assets with a non-custodial wallet that it can't access and where only users have access to their private keys. Simon and I discuss the spectrum of options available today for investors who want to buy crypto, the associated risks of each, how and why non-custodial wallets will be the difference maker in recovering consumer confidence in the crypto industry, and why interoperability is the key to building America's super wallet. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Simon. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the hosts or any of their affiliates. This podcast is for commercial and informational purposes only, is not investment advice, and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending any securities or cryptocurrencies, nor is this an offer or sale of a security or cryptocurrency. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Kaylin, thank you very much for having me. Excited to dig in on all kinds of things around self-custody, around Cogni specifically. But first, I always want to start with a bit of an overview on who I'm talking to for the people listening. Can you give a little bit of a background on your role within Cogni and where you came from beforehand? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm the head of Web3 at Cogni, which means that basically I'm in charge of scaling Cogni's Web3 initiatives uh, from the ground up. Um, and that means that everything that we're doing on the Web3 side uh, from our non-custodial to liquidity to all the marketplaces and all the other bells and whistles and really cool features that we're building out is really within my scope. Uh, I come from about 18 years of fintech experience, started my career in IT, fell into capital markets pretty quickly. Uh, at one point was a registered commodity trading advisor. So I was a regulated entity with the National Futures Association. Uh, so I have a very good background, very strong background when it comes to compliance and regulatory. Uh, both in the U.S. and overseas, also set up entities overseas, broker dealers, um, other types of uh, both custodial and non-custodial uh, from everywhere from BVI to St. Vincent's to uh, Singapore to you name it. Um, and uh, in the mid-20-teens is when I kind of got bit by the blockchain bug, if that's a thing, and uh, started building out platforms and services catering to crypto. And uh, fast forward, and uh, and here I am. So I've been helping a lot of companies in the space, not just from the crypto side, but also from the Web3, like NFTs. Um, I've consulted for companies like Vivi, a very large NFT marketplace, um, not really on any other branding or, or things of that nature, but more on the commercial aspects, more on the tokenomics aspects, more on listings, compliance, regulatory, things, things of that nature. And for the last uh, seven, eight months, I've been here at Cogni, uh, building out our non-custodial wallet and paving a path forward for Cogni to uh, essentially try to dominate in the Web3 space as far as neobanking is concerned. Yeah, I've definitely seen more and more talk around these types of solutions as well. So maybe we'll start there. What is Cogni? And really, um, 
in the landscape of all of the different solutions that are out there for retail investors right now, how is Cogni different on the spectrum of, say, the Coinbase's and FTX's of the world versus the, you know, hardware wallets, software wallets, total self-custody, sort of wild west out on your own um, far end of the spectrum? <laughs> okay, this is a this is a podcast topic within itself, but I'll, I'm going to try to limit the uh, the response. Okay, so uh, before. Before I came on board, uh, Cogni was a standard neobank, banking as a service. And what differentiates a neobank from your traditional charter bank? Uh, well, neobanks are more of a thinner, lighter version of your Chases, of your TD Ameritrades, of your Citigroup, of your, you know, those kind of banks. Um, makes it easier for people to open up accounts, to manage those accounts. Uh, what are people looking for in banking today? Just a means to collect their payroll and a debit card. Um, neobanks don't generally sell products like mortgages. They don't do lending. They don't do CDs and things of that nature. So for people who just want a bank account quickly with no fuss, um, don't want to have to walk into a brick and mortar location to set up an account, that's what neobanking is all about. Uh, by virtue of being thinner and slimmer and more nimble than your traditional institutions, it also allows neobanks to lead in innovation. So where does innovation come from? Well, the ability to move and, and act and adapt to market demands. That brings us to the point of why we're talking, which is the whole Web3 initiative that Cogni is going through. So um, with the background that I brought to the table and the experience that I have building out systems, both custodial, non-custodial, exchanges, liquidity solutions, operations, I got to work uh, in July of 2022 to build out the first non-custodial wallet attached to FDIC insured accounts. This is, by the way, this is going to uh, tail into the conversation about how we differentiate ourselves from the Geminis and the Krakens and the Coinbases of the world. Uh, but effectively by offering a non-custodial solution along with our existing solution, so Web3 and Web2 in the same application, we're able to basically provide our users with the full gamut of fiduciary application uses. What does that mean? That means that if you want to transact in fiat or in crypto, you can do so through the same app. Now, where we differentiate ourselves from the Geminis and the Coinbases and the Krakens and everybody else in the world is that we're able to provide FDIC insured fiat accounts. Now that means that if Cogni goes belly up for whatever reason, then our users do not become necessarily creditors of Cogni, instead, they are insured up to $250,000, by the way, to receive their money back. On the crypto side, if we again fail, users have their own keys. The, the notion of a non-custodial wallet means that we are not custodying your crypto. You are actually custodying your crypto. Yes, we provide you with a wallet. Yes, it's part of our application, but the keys you can export at any given point in time, and you can then import your assets into any other wallet that you feel you want to do so. We cannot restrict that. It's yours for all intents and purposes and is completely hands-off. So what does that mean? That means that our users can trust that in the event things go completely south here, they will not lose their funds either on the fiat side and they will not lose their digital assets on the crypto side. Whereas our competitors, unfortunately, cannot make the same claim. A centralized exchange, just like we've seen with the blowups, you've mentioned FTX, and we've seen Celsius, and we've seen Voyager, and we've seen a lot of these guys just fold. Unfortunately, the funds you have deposited 
at those respective platforms do not belong to you. Once you send it to them, it is now commingled with the rest of the client funds, which is effectively an account owned by that platform, not by you. Uh, and if they default, then you basically are, you know, kind of out of luck. Um, our, our bank accounts that we offer to our customers, they have their own routing number, their own account number. Again, it's a bank account as far as anybody's concerned. So we can't really touch that. And because we're completely hands-off, we can make that claim that we are in fact safer than any of those centralized exchanges. That brings up such an important point to talk about too, which is around custody. And I think the FTX situation did kind of expose a lot of the risks that people don't normally think about when it comes to um, buying crypto, having it custodied with an entity like an FTX, like a Coinbase. And I think we were talking about this before the recording as well. This is a risk that also translates on the traditional side of things. So maybe let's talk a little bit about, you know, you mentioned some of the risks that are inherent in working with, you know, solutions such as those versus say a Cogni or self-custody. I, I think this brings up the importance of self-custody again, which is something that crypto native people have been banging in the drum on for a very long time, but it is often very daunting for a lot of people to try to wrap their heads around, you know, how to go about it, managing your own keys and, you know, being the one that is truly in control of that rather than passing off the responsibility to the entity. I, I wonder if that narrative has been championed by centralized exchanges more than they have by the actual <laughs> users. So let's think about that. Mm -hmm. Custodying your private key. Okay. Uh, I, I bet you and a lot of the people listening in here are, are have at the very least an image somewhere in their phone or somewhere in their email or somewhere in their, their drive or Apple ID that they maintain private. That's all you need to do when you're backing up a key. A key could be as simple as just a barcode that you back up. It could be as simple as a 12 word mnemonic phrase that you write down on a piece of paper and stick into a book. That's it, that's all you have to do. But I think that there's a narrative out there that is, well, you can't trust yourself, so trust us. So I take the opposite opinion. I say that you can trust yourself. You just need to understand how simple it is for you to trust yourself. Okay, we're not talking about life and death situations. There's not an asteroid heading to the earth, as far as I know. Uh, I mean, we had that one green comet out there, but uh, it's <laughs> not a problem. But that's all it really is. You know, being able to maintain your private key, just like a password, is really very, very, very simple. And we actually try to make it even simpler than that. Like our users can export their key. They can back it up to their email. They can back it up to their Google Drive. They can back it up. They can print it out. As I just mentioned, as a barcode, for barcode format, fold it up and just stick it in a frame somewhere. Do whatever. It's off, off, mm -hmm. off their app. Um, so I, that's why I wonder, like, who's really driving that? Our goal, my job particularly, is to try to push the agenda and get the amount of education out there to explain how simple it is for a user to go through, click, 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 done. And that's how they back up their key. That's it. Okay. It's that click, 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 done that some people feel is very overbearing for some reason. And again, I think that narrative has been really pushed by the centralized platforms that want to make it sound like you know, you can't trust yourself, but you can trust us, you know. And for those who don't understand tech, they believe it because they think that it's a massive undertaking to try to do a simple backup of a phrase. That's it. 
So, you know, that's that's our goal. Our goal is to try to make sure that that education, that support, clearly the support, and I'm going to emphasize that a few times during this conversation, is how we maintain and provide the best class support that we can for our customers with regard to the amount of education on our website, the tutorial videos that are currently underway so that people can understand how easy things are to, to get done, and the way our app actually forces users to acknowledge yes, I'm too lazy to back up my key, so that's fine. I'm just going to go on without it. Well, we don't say it that way. Instead, what we what we do is when somebody logs in for the very first time, we say, please back up your key. You don't want to back up your key? Are you sure you don't want to back up your key? Like we prompt them a few times mm-hmm. and then we tell them it's very, very simple, very easy. And it's really going to be on you if you, if you miss out on this because we're not going to be able to help you. But the same thing is with cash. The same thing is with expensive jewelry. Anything that you're deciding to custody on your own, people have no problem custodying that stuff, which takes up space, volume. But uh, yeah, so my job is to make sure that people understand how simple it is to do these operations. They do it one time and then they don't have to worry about it ever again until at some point in the future when they decide they want to move their funds, they want to sell, they want to liquidate, they want to this, that, who knows what. Such an important point around education, which is obviously what we're doing here, because I absolutely agree with you. The narrative around self-custody, who is it being driven by? I do agree that it's likely coming from the more centralized entities that, you know, say trust us. It's our responsibility. We'll take care of your assets. Right. And we've seen that blow up time and time again, that we continue to, you know, um, link ourselves to these systems that encourage that same type of relationship rather than changing it. I would also say on the traditional side of things outside of, you know, those entities that are trying to custody your assets, that it's just another excuse for people who don't want to learn about the space to stay out of it. Oh, this is like, this is a difficult thing to do. I don't want to learn how to do it. I don't feel comfortable doing that. And like you said, we self-custody a lot of things in life. So this is definitely not, you know, the first time that this has ever been proposed. It's not the first time that people have ever done this, but we insist on making it different. And it brings up a broader conversation around why trust me is such an empty statement, um, which I, I think you can talk about here as well, whether on the traditional side and in crypto. It's just yeah. something that you have to kind of rewire your brain when you're thinking about. Well, that's that's a great point you're bringing up. And I want to I state the following. Uh, I go around telling people about our offering versus everybody else's offering when we're having these discussions. And it's very clear when I, I direct people to, to think about this. You don't have to trust Simon when you're opening up an account here. You don't have to trust anybody else here. You just have to trust our process. You have to trust yourself with the keys and you have to trust the federal government that will pay you out in the event we become insolvent. That's it. With the centralized platforms, you have to trust everybody on that team that won't engage in illicit activities, that they won't over leverage your, 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 your funds, that they won't over leverage themselves, which we've seen them do time and time again, get themselves into deeper, 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 deeper modes of, uh, of debt that they can't get out of. And then you have an FTX debacle, okay? Or you have a Celsius debacle, or you have a Voyager debacle, or you have a, I mean, this goes on and on. So um, I think that they have done a pretty good job of kind of squeezing people's uh, fear to some degree. And we can see that that has had a better uh, effect on driving that narrative. Now, after all is said and done, and dust settled a little bit, now people are starting to realize that, wait a minute, yeah, there is a risk here that goes beyond above and beyond what I'm doing. I think 99.999% of the trader, if not all of 
people trading crypto today can accept the risk that if I place a bad trade, they lose money. I, I, I made a bad bet. But none of them, none of them can accept the, the, the risk that I'm not doing anything wrong, but you don't know how to run your business and you're using my funds to help you push your agenda. And it's not just that, it's all the excess that goes around that, that nobody, nobody accepts. Obviously, nobody wants to accept that. That is something that people can understand. We can't even accomplish. We don't have that kind of leverage. We can't lend out your money. When you make deposits at Cognate, again, as a neobank, we cannot lend out your funds. We can't sit on it and create some sort of DeFi solution around it. We can't create secondary markets around it. It's your money and we are hands off. So because we're hands off, that is the, the beginning point of why, why we need to be trusted. I'm not telling you to trust me. I'm saying, again, trust our process. Don't trust Simon. Okay, you shouldn't trust people. You should trust the process that uh, is in place to make sure to guardrail against illicit activities and having another FTX. And the, the part that you mentioned about trust is important because I really don't know if there's ever a place in any decision that you make that does not involve at least some type of trust. But like to your point, is it in a process? Is it in code? Or is it in specific people who you are trusting to make a decision that they're telling you they're going to make or not make a decision that they tell you they're not going to make? Well, let's think about this way. Uh, so you mentioned code and stuff. Um, you know, if you build a, a routine, if you just generate a line of code that's supposed to do ABC, it's always going to do ABC because that's what we told it to do. And that's all it's going to do. It's going to do ABC. And that's all it knows in, in, in this universe. Um, it's only when a human comes and starts messing with it and telling you to do other things. And then all of a sudden now you're adding more features and functionality. And of course you're opening up for what bugs to happen and to occur as well. So from a tech standpoint, will there be issues? Yeah, obviously the more we build and innovate, the more problems we're going to find, but you know, it's, it's a cyclical, it's a cyclical process. It's, you know, you build something, you fix two things, right? You, you build five things, you, you have 20 things going wrong. And, but that's okay, you know, it's, it's our objective, just like any other development company to produce code with zero flaws in it. Um, it's, it's, it's a goal, but it's never fully achieved, obviously. Uh, I'm not uh, worried about that and neither should anybody using a non-custodial wallet, Cognis or anyone's. Reason being is that the wallet itself does one function primarily, and that's to preserve your private key. You don't need to have a wallet per se to actually manage a private key. You could just have assets in said wallet, record your private key offline, and then remove the wallet from your phone, from your computer, from wherever, and that's it. Now you have this piece of paper that has 12 phrases on it, 12, 12 words on it, that at any point in the future, you decide to install a new wallet, take those take that phrase, put it back in, and all your assets come right back. Because your assets are basically just written on the chain. That's all it is. Right? So I'm not, uh, I, I'm not gonna talk about that too much. What I am gonna say is that, again, when it comes to our process, we do not expose our customers to the same kind of risk that centralized platforms expose themselves to. Let's just, we start with that and then we can kind of explore a bit more. But at the end of the day, uh, we are hands-off on the fiat side. We are hands-off on the crypto side. No central platform can make those claims. Ergo, ipso ergo, whatever, I don't know the legalese exactly, but that means that anybody depositing funds with a centralized platform, unfortunately, is being exposed to those risks. 
And it's unfortunate that it takes such extreme circumstances for most people to really pay attention to all the risks inherent in those solutions, right? I, I think it is kind of human nature for for yeah. it to, you know, not want to think about all of these things unless it's actually happening to you. I see that in a lot of areas of life for sure. But I do think that um, non-custodial wallets will be a really big difference maker in recovering consumer confidence. Because like you said, the trust is not placed in a person. You can literally just keep your private, uh, have your code recorded. You could literally clean your hands of it entirely and know that when you go back to it, it will be there still. Yeah. So, I mean, you bring up a, a lot of good, interesting points. So the thing is with the wallet, you know, we're, we're also exploring uh, identity as a service as well. Uh, Reason being is because we, you know, again, as a neobank, we KYC, and this is actually a, a, something that I want to explore with you real quick. Uh, anonymity, anonymity within the world of, of Web3. Uh, you can transact and be as anonymous as you want to be. The problem, though, there is that there are risks above and beyond. Uh, everything from anti-money laundering to just illicit activities online to, you know, bad actors taking advantage of others. The days of being able to transact on third-party platforms anonymously, those days are numbered, unfortunately, at least here in the U.S. What that means is that at some point in the future, most likely this year, we're going to get some requirements coming down from the Fed that's going to state that everybody dealing in Web3 transactions will have a certain amount of time to basically get their act together. And by getting their act together, it means that they need to have a means to know who's coming to their platform and transacting, which in the world of Web3... Uh, is a problem. It's a problem because it's not designed to do that. So that means platforms are going to have to do one of two things. One, they're going to have to make sure that every user that comes to them with just a wallet to connect will have to also have an account on OpenSea, on Rarible, on Club Rare, whatever. Um, that's one. Or two, they figure out a solution that will allow Web3 users to continue a Web3 experience without having to go through a KYC every single time. Because think about it. I don't know how many platforms you interface with. I interface with, I don't know how many number of them. You know, I have multiple wallets that I'm using because it's hard for me to keep track of which what's what. Um, but uh, I interact with a lot. So that means I'm going to have to now create and go through KYC with each one of these platforms in, a, in order to continue to operate. Not that big of a deal from my end, but imagine the kind of lift that causes the platform to go through each platform is going to have to maintain those compliance requirements, spin up a staff, have a chief compliance officer, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I figured out the problem actually a long time ago, but it was only due to non-transferable fungible tokens that I was able to create a solution. So we're moving forward with the creation of our passport and our passport will allow our users and our Web3 partners to continue to operate the way they've been operating right now with no downtime, not requiring any upfront investment from any of these Web3 platforms, but at the same time, allowing them to maintain compliance and to make sure that they know that it's Caitlin, it's Simon, it's whoever it is coming to their platform to transact. And that's such a tricky space to navigate right now too, especially in regard to regulation, especially in the United States, um, just trying to jump through the hoops there and trying to offer a compliance solution. You know, the landscape on that is changing pretty quickly. And I know that KYC has been, you know, a pretty big part of that conversation. And um, so, I mean, there's a lot that we could dig into there. Um, but one thing I do want to focus on that I think is really important. I mean, this whole podcast is about bridging the gap, right? Traditional finance, DeFi. And 
the main thing that I noticed when you started talking about Cogni that I really, really wanted to dig into with you today is around interoperability, making the process more seamless for people who want to go from fiat to crypto, crypto to fiat, having all of their assets in one place, rather than like you said, I mean, I have a ton of wallets too. It's hard to, you know, hop from soft, uh, like platform to platform and, you know, keep track of everything that you have going on. Um, the, the more interoperability that there is, the more, you know, products that come to market that merge both traditional finance and decentralized finance, it's going to help a lot with user onboarding and adoption. And I think it's a really, really critical part that a lot of people, you know, you see people building on the DeFi side of things. I work for a DeFi protocol, lots of really interesting things happening, but in terms of making something practical that will bring in non-crypto native users, I think where Cogni is right now is a really, really sweet spot that a lot of people should be focusing more on because Mm -hmm. you don't want to just focus on the people that are already in crypto. This is about taking the technology to the capacity that it can be used for and making it simple. Because at the end of the day, a lot of people will not start using new technology unless they're forced to or unless the solution that they can find is simple. On that note, uh, some of the marketing efforts that we're going to be implementing this year are around gaming and metaverses. Um, and, and I'll explain. Uh, one of the things on, on my roadmap over the next few months is also to push out a marketplace. And the intention of the marketplace is to have, uh, so like an app store, okay, for Web3 dApps. Not uncommon. I mean, these things already exist. Uh, a lot of the wallets, most of the wallets actually have like their dApp area, right, where they, you can actually add your own as well. Uh, we don't plan on doing that. We plan on rolling on a marketplace that is all curated content. It's all curated because we want to have partners that we bring to the table. And then we also allow exposure to our users. So games and metaverses, and of course, NFT exchanges, but it's more, more game and metaverse. Those are going to be the primary uh, uh, primary initiatives in the beginning. This way, we can attract those people that are the gamers. Okay, And by attracting the gamers, we can now start exposing them more and more into crypto. Same thing with the metaverse people, too which is kind of gamification as well. So I guess we kind of like wrap them all up in the same, uh, same umbrella. Um, by, by providing them with a scenario where uh, the gaming platforms can then market our product to their users and let them know that if they come to Cogni, set up an account, do all that stuff, they'll have a wallet as part of their banking experience, it's going to save them. It's going to save them the, the hassle of sending money back and forth to an exchange, go into crypto and then come back to and go back and forth and do all that stuff. And we've solved that. We haven't implemented it yet, but we've solved the whole crypto to fiat and then back and forth again um, by virtue of just being a neobank. You know, neobanks, again, because we're nimble, because we can do certain things quickly and fast, and we're agile from a technology perspective, we can implement a lot of features that allow us to do that. So any neobank interested in offering this kind of a service basically has to take their existing app, figure out how to throw just a non-custodial on top of it, and then build out all the backend routines that allow buying and selling to happen. It doesn't necessarily mean we need to have like a full-blown order book on day one, uh, but they are able to effectively use the fiat that they have in their FDIC account, buy crypto, use the crypto wherever they want to use it, or whatever game, metaverse, NFT exchange, DeFi solution, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it's any given point in the future, if they decide they want to go back into fiat, they can take said crypto, sell it right into their Cogni bank account and withdraw from an ATM if they choose. So this gets me really excited just thinking about selfishly um, my situation. So I'm, as an example, 
paid in stable coins. So mm-hmm. get paid to a software wallet that I manage on my own self custody, right? Like we talked about the difficulty right now in terms of on ramps and off ramps for the whole process of it, there are definitely bottlenecks depending on who you go through. Mm-hmm. So the money is sent every few weeks to my wallet that I manage completely by myself. And in order to actually use that money, like we'll have it in my bank account, pay bills. Um, right now I have to send that to a Coinbase or previously FTX. And then when it gets to that account, then I have to convert to fiat and inf- enter my bank information and have it sent that way. The three, the three business days, you know, whatever the, the mm-hmm. standard is for the transfer still on the traditional side. And it's really clunky. So the fact that not only can you have self-custody crypto and US FDIC insured, you know, traditional finances all in one place and also have the component of, you know, apps that you can access that are already linked to that, this we need so much more of this. Like I'm getting really excited thinking about this because this is literally the playbook that others building should be following. And then it's more inclusive you can build it out in a lot of different directions. People want an all-encompassing solution. And that doesn't just speak specifically to crypto or to finances. If you can ever do everything in one place, why would you ever leave? There you go. So we're reducing the amount of steps that you have to do to accomplish a certain task. We're bringing a more trusted environment from the fiat side and the crypto side. Okay, And we're reducing a lot of the overhead requirement all, all the way around. So you see it's sort of like a trifecta, right? So we're, we're, we're making, we're taking the current scenario, we're just making it way better, more secure from a trust perspective and from just a technolo- technology trust perspective as well. Because again, we're not testing funds, right? So, you know, a, a platform can operate with just the best intentions in the world. And then you have one bad actor on the team and that can ruin it for everybody. Uh, here, even if the entire team was bad, right? Which, I mean, not the entire team. Let's say, okay, some of the people here on the team, you know, are just acting with bad intentions. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because there's no way nobody here can touch your money. No one here can touch your assets. So, yeah, I agree with you. I think that uh, I'm glad, too, that we're, we're moving in this direction. I think that this is what we're going to find neobanks starting to do more and more. I mean, there was an announcement uh, this earlier this week. I forgot which... Um, there's an investment bank now that is offering also non-custodial and FDIC insured accounts. So it's starting to pick up. I think this is definitely going to be the wave 2023, 2024. We're going to see a ton of other institutions picking up the same notion. And, you know, then it's game on. Then it's it's up to uh, up to the neobanks to just duke it out for uh, for top spot. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually I'm excited to get to that part for sure. But all things in good timing. I have to ask, though, so from a tax perspective, um, you think about trying to track your crypto activity and trying to remain compliant for on the tax side of things, whether that's like buying and selling different tokens, whether that's, you know, fiat to crypto, crypto to fiat, all of those transactions. Is Cogni going in terms of data tracking on that side of things? I know that it's still self-custody on the crypto side. How will it work from that perspective? Is there going to be any support in terms of, you know, data tracking for what users do with their various wallets and assets? Um, so depends. It depends. Uh, there is the idea to to offer that to our customers because first off, there's no we don't see a reason why we need to be tracking. First off, it's it's going to be difficult to track our customers, our users, simply because it's all non-custodial. So it's not like we're issuing a wallet address to them and then we're tracking the address. When a user comes in, signs up, goes through the motions, 
and they have their wallet ready to go. We don't know what their wallet address is. They'd have to share that with us. Okay. Mm -hmm. Again, security. Right? Um, so there is a notion and an idea of like, if we did do that, first up, what would be the benefit to the user, to the end customer? How would it benefit them? Right. Mm -hmm. Is it for us to be provide better support? Not a bad idea. Let's explore that. Or is it so that we could market garbage to them? You know, so it's, you know, these are things we go through, like to figure out like what, what, where's the utility in, in helping the user this way? Um, jury is still out, still trying to figure it out. I, I think that there is value in doing so for one reason, one reason, at least for one reason, which is to make sure to alert users if they are connecting to a wallet or to a third party that has questionable uh, backgrounds. So as an example, uh, you're a Cogni user, you're going onto a platform and you're about to transact. So you're transacting with something. It's another wallet. You don't know if it's an individual or if it's a team or it's an organization, whatever it is. By monitoring that, we could provide you or alert you to say, hey, there have been issues with this particular wallet the coin may have been tainted. The coin may have been already involved in some sort of AML thing in the, you know, in the past, which may cause a problem to you if you then decide you want to sell that coin or you want to transact using the same coin. So I would see some value in uh, in alerting users when it comes to those kind of things. Um, as far as taxes are concerned, I'm not, I'm not a CPA. I can't help. I can't really identify anything. I can tell you this though. Uh, I've seen, you know, how other platforms are providing certain tax uh, type of filing and things. And it's completely wrong. It's not wrong in the sense that it's wrong to do that. I get it. I understand the value that it would bring. But the way it goes about calculating the numbers is completely wrong. They, there's, it's impossible to figure out what my P&L was on coin that I may have bought on exchange A then sold on exchange B, and then whatever I have left, bring on exchange C, transact on exchange D. How are you going to know how much I started and how much I ended? To me, it's a simple solution. It's whatever your net balance is at the end of the year. Is it higher than it was last year or is it lower than it was last year or in the beginning or whatever it is, however you want to quantify it. Um, that's the only way I know how to figure out like how, how much you actually earn as a return. It's not based on this exchange's feedback, that exchange's feedback, that exchange's feedback, because prices go up and down all the time. Everything is cyclical, you know? So I, yeah, I, I'm i not the right guy to ask. <laughs> Just top of mind with uh, thinking about tax season, which always seems to creep up on us way too quickly for those listening. <laughs> if anyone's transacting on the crypto side of things, definitely make sure to start early and often on tracking all of those things for yourself, at least. Um, just more of a best practice. But th the other thing that I found interesting, you go to Cogni's website and something that I harp on talking to, builders on the DeFi side of things, crypto builders, developers, is the importance of creating a mobile experience for users. And I think that's something that neobanks have captured really well as a whole, because right there's not the brick and mortar building that you go to to um, you know work with someone and get an account set up and whatnot. It's pretty much digitally based, right? And I think that in terms of adoption, again, everything needs to be on a phone. Everything needs to be well constructed for a phone, at least have the option available. And there are solutions today. I mean, on self-custody side, like I can access a phantom wallet, a MetaMask on my phone. It's not great. It exists. But I think that 
um, a big part of mainstream adoption is going to make be making all of this easily accessible from a phone. So that's another really important consideration that I encourage builders to think about more and more, just because you're only capturing so many people when you're forced to go to a laptop to transact. Yeah, you know, I, I don't remember the last time, specifically the last time I actually walked into a bank and opened up an account at that bank. I do remember that it was a, it was a bit of a process. You'd have to spend about an hour, you know, filling out paperwork and this and that. And then, you know, you have temporary cards you can use. So, you know, it's it's a bit of a process and you have to wait in line until the, the rep is ready to see you. Uh, it takes thir- three minutes, three minutes on your phone to open up a Cognate account and have it go live. Okay, I you can't beat that kind of an experience. And to your point, you know, neobanks can do that. Neobanks have the, have the flexibility to onboard people very quickly. You know, the, the amount of products offered are, are limited. So there's a lot of uh, AML risk that's already taken off the table. Um, and, you know, again, they don't have to deal with brick and mortar locations. So a lot of, a lot of the overhead that goes into operating those kind of things that goes off the table too, you know. So neobanks can focus on streamlining the user experience to, how well and easy and efficient it is to open up an account and then how simple and effective the user experience is post-account opening for you to do your day-to-day, you know, collecting your payroll into Cogni. Uh, I know you get paid in stablecoin, but for the rest of us schmucks, we get paid still in fiat. <laughs> so that means I need to have a bank account that accepts, you know, fiat, right? So I can do that in my Cogni. And at the same time, once I have money in there, I can then also convert it directly into crypto or vice versa. In your case, you would get crypto. You would get crypto directly into your Cognitive wallet, and then you just sell it right into cash, and then you just pull right out of the ATM. Yeah, it's just making that whole process so much smoother, which I think is where we're at in terms of the growth of the space as a whole, is getting beyond you know, some of the more fun things, some of the more, you know, maybe lower utility items and thinking ba- thinking about what can this tech be used for and how do we bring more people in? How do we embed it in society in a way that will last and actually improve things? And that's really exciting to see. I mean, whether it's like the solution that Cogni's been building out on the Web3 side, whether it's some of the other things that you've seen traditional firms doing to sort of adjust for this new technology versus new startups that are more crypto native, mm-hmm. it's, we're getting to that point. And I know you come from a long background of working in tech and working in startup environment and whatnot. I'm curious for sort of the bigger picture perspective from you on where we're at and how crypto and Web3 as a whole is maturing and what comes next. Okay. So what comes next is identity management, identity as a service uh, amongst Web3. So I... uh, cracking the code to Web3 identity, I think is what's coming up next. Uh, what does that mean? That means that, you know, I can hand you my license and then you can try to fake it by saying you're Simon, right? You have to put on some glasses, crappy hat and a hoodie and, you know, hey, I'm Simon. Um, well, managing that online is very difficult to do. That's why there's all these things like 3D secure, and that's why they do all the, you know, you do your face, you scan your actual photo ID, you know, it makes a match. Um, and then you, we have tools for that. But now that we're moving to this non-custodial area where you're basically custom your own digital assets, including stable coins, which could be used to commence commerce the way you normally do with a credit card. Well, now you have to actually show who you are, or you need to have some level of that 
uh, anonymity removed a little bit so that you can a comply with both local and federal uh, regulation, but also at the same time, you know, kind of like say, hey, it's it's a real person here, you know, and maybe you want to transact with a person and not just with some nameless, faceless uh, organization. I think the level of anonymity overall in Web3 is going to start to drop once we start doing that. And, you know, from my perspective, there is a benefit to some degree for anonymity, but it's not a hard requirement. I don't need to transact anonymously unless I am trying to withhold something from somebody. If you think about it, what is it that I'm trying to withhold from certain people that makes me want to be anonymous? Well, I leave that to you to think about. Uh, I don't. I don't have anything to hide. Uh, when I'm using Venmo to send money to you know my kid's music teacher, I keep that private. I don't need to let the whole universe know that I'm sending money to, you know, it's nobody's business really, but some people like telling people about that. Okay, go for it. Fine. Uh, that's what I mean. The level of anonymity, I think, is going to start decreasing in the world of Web3. Um, I also think that we're going to see some new regs, not just from the KYC perspective, but there will be some new regs around crypto as a whole. Um where we get a little bit more definition. The SEC, unfortunately, has not been doing a very good job of that. Um, they're, yeah, they're reactive, obviously. They're not proactive in a lot of these things. Uh, so I would expect that between them, the CFTC and, and the feds, uh, they'll try to figure something out. But we desperately, desperately, des desperately in this country need to have more defined framework of how to operate compliantly um, from an exchange perspective, from a token issuance perspective. Every other country has this. By the way, we're the last ones in the modern universe to, to now start thinking about this. Uh, you can go to Singapore. Singapore will give you a, a 15, 20 page document outlines it perfectly, how to operate in this space. Great. That's why you see all these US companies going to Singapore to set up shop, not here. So I'm hoping that there'll be uh, more clarity, more transparency, and better guidelines to how to actually operate within this space. So Identity as a service, uh, dropping of the, or I would say more transparency when it comes to the actors in the space and reduction of anonymity. And of course, better guidelines, more concrete definition of how to operate compliantly here in the US. Not a single person that I've had on this podcast has not mentioned the regulatory clarity, at least the people that are in the US, right? So everyone wants the same thing. And it is funny, I feel like for a while there was this, um, you know, stereotype from those who weren't in the space in crypto that a lot of the builders and a lot of the people involved didn't want regulation. People want clarity. And the people that understand that we need, you know, that confirmation from regulators in more detail, it, it couldn't be further from the truth to say that they don't want it. And they know that it's coming. It's more of we need more specifics and we need things that are definitive rather than being just reactive instead of proactive, like you said. Yeah, I think that the reason why the U.S. is lagging here has nothing to do with our capacity or capability of understanding. I think the reason why we're lagging is simply because of certain lobbying efforts that are going on. Because it doesn't make sense that the U.S. would be last to the table on making sure that we know how to do things. We were the, we were the ones who invented the Internet for Christ's sakes. Okay? We invented so, so much innovation over the last 50, 100 years came out of the U.S., but yet this is this is the one new frontier when it comes to online, anything online is Web3. It's the latest and greatest. And yet here we are lagging. And why is that? I suspect because I lived through this through the Dodd-Frank bill of 20, uh, 2010, where I've seen how a bill that was meant to uh, effectively stop 
big institutions from taking advantage of, of investors. Well, it didn't really do that. In fact, it did the exact opposite. It gave a lot of powers to SROs, self-regulated entities. And a lot of those SROs uh, were already in bed with all the banks already. So they just did, and they put out new rules and, and, and rulings that would just benefit them. Um, that's unfortunately the reality here in this country. So we are going to be the last of the party. Um, you know, until the banks have a direct interest in making sure that crypto works, then we're still going to be kind of like staring at the walls, waiting, waiting for somebody to do something. Yeah, it, it does feel a little bit like watching paint dry, especially when the space is moving as quickly as it is. I mean, at, at what point do you just continue to fall further and further behind as new things are being created that you should be thinking about from a regulatory framework as well, instead of just focusing, you know, we're still at very foundational questions that need to be answered, in my opinion. So the longer that we wait on getting all of that clarity, I mean, I fall further and further behind. And that's what it feels like, at least. Oh, no, 100%. No, it's not. You're not wrong. You're, you're 100% right. Um, look, like I just said, you go to Singapore, you go to Zurich, you go to Panama, you go to any, <laughs> any uh, industrialized country in the world, Japan. Okay, Japan, Japanese, they have the strictest guidelines. Let's put that into perspective. FTX blew up. Okay, FTX proper, done. Whatever's left is just dust. You have FTX US, which they're kind of like, you know, debating right now whether or not the funds are actually there or not. I don't, I don't have the latest uh, figures on that. The only platform, the only FTX subsidiary that existed and is able to provide all of their funds, all their customers, their funds one-to-one down to the last cent was FTX Japan. Why? Why was FTX Japan in a position to do so? Well, I think there's two reasons. Number one, it's the uh, FSA, the JFSA, the Japanese Financial Services Authority, and the amount of compliance and regulatory requirements that they put, that they force and enforce on their, uh, on their members. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, I actually also contribute a lot of that to the cultural uh, uh, the cultural standings within Japan and the, just the way that the Japanese nation operate. I mean, they're just head and shoulders above everybody else. Just watch any international football game, soccer game. And what the, the, it's just, it's, it's amazing. The, the, you know, so they have a, uh, there's a, an inherent honor from them to make sure that they are not lying or deceiving people. That's just how they are. So they're going to follow the flow of their regulatory oversight and they're going to adhere to that. Um, but that I think is definitely an outlier. The rest of the world doesn't really operate that way, unfortunately. So here we are in the US waiting for something to happen. And uh, like I said, until the banks have a direct reason um, to capitalize on it, I don't think that they're motivated to, to lobby one way or the other. In fact, I'm pretty sure that they're happy with everybody just fighting it out right now. I don't disagree on that for sure. <laughs> this leads me to the last question I always ask people on this podcast, which sort of like bigger picture things. You sort of alluded to some of what I think you'll say for this, but bull case, bear case on, you know, crypto, blockchain technology, mm-hmm. getting to the point that I think we probably both agree that it could get to in, you know, being very deeply embedded in so many different parts of society and financial services and really hopefully changing things for net positive, um, which I think is definitely realistic, but what would it take for that not to happen? What are the biggest risks to that at a global scale? And on the flip side of that, you know, what are the most exciting elements that you think will propel the space forward? Wow. 
Well, that's an interesting question. Um, so let's talk about risks first off, or some of the, some of the downside, right? Some of the cons. Um, regulation, uh, although we're looking for it and I'm welcoming it, the fact that it's not coming, that's a risk. The fact that it may come and may tell everybody, hey, no, you need to have a banking license now if you want to operate an exchange. Okay, go drop 50 million bucks, get a whole staff and wait two years until your charter is ready and then you can operate. That would be the... Like that would be the extreme of what you know, a new regulatory uh, requirement would, would require. Um, so I would say bad regulation, poor regulation. Uh, I would say that um, if if there's if there's a scenario where you would see bad actors continue to operate poorly in the space, you know, people not learning from their mistakes, uh, the next Celsius would be a problem. The next Voyager would be a pro- the next FTX would be a problem. Uh, hopefully people under- learn from those mistakes and they don't repeat them. But again, it's depending on people like you to continue that narrative, get it out there so that people understand, hey, there are risks here. So do your homework before you jump in. Don't just listen to some influencer who pops up on your Facebook feed telling you about an amazing trading robot that makes 300% returns. Listen, I've been in this space for a very long time. Okay, Even before crypto was even a thing, I was in the financial markets. Uh, I've, I've seen every possible scam multiple times. I both know people personally uh, who are either now or have been incarcerated or are currently on the run from law enforcement. Okay, it's unfortunate, but at the same time, unavoidable. You're going to be in the financial markets. You're going to meet people like that. It's just nature of the business. So I have a lot to bring to the table and have a lot of discussions around it, but that being said, I think some of the pros, so, okay, so that's the bad news, right? So now good news, okay, only good news. I think from a good news, back to regulation again, hopefully we get some good stuff coming down, right? Hopefully we'll start to have a better defined means to produce effectively and compliantly here in the US. We're all waiting on that because I'm also tired of setting up companies in everywhere from Liechtenstein to Singapore to St. Vincent's, like enough, like, why am I doing that? I'm a US guy, let me just operate here. Why, why are you making me go there? Um, okay, but now as a neobank, I'm good to go. Um, so I would say regulation, that would be a good thing. Another good thing would be government adaptation. So when state and local governments are now looking at blockchain and what that can provide them with, I think that's a good thing. Look at the state of California now looking to issue DMV records over Tezos. Okay, that's a good thing. That's what blockchain is meant to do. It's meant to allow people to store value in a trustless environment in a very seamless and borderless environment. Great. Let's expand on that. Why limit it to just DMV? What about you know real estate titles? What about birth certificate? I mean, it just you know. Uh, um, vital record systems. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. So I would, I'm, I'm looking for more adoption by state, local, fed agencies around these kind of things. Uh, and of course, hopefully new regulatory from the fed, fingers crossed on that. So those are my thoughts. Perfect. Well, that's a good place to wrap it. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. For those listening, where can they go to learn more about Cogni? Yeah, so our website is getcogni.com. Um, like I said, it takes about three minutes to open up an account. Very simple website with, you know, as much information as we think is relevant. We don't want to bombard people with too much stuff. But I mean, if they want to find more information, we have a lot of information on the website available to them. Uh, the app is available for both iOS and Android. 
And we have numerous social channels as well that uh, people can hit us up on. And uh, yeah, if they have any questions or if they have anything directed at me specifically that they want to understand more, just go to the website, fill out the contact form. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll do our best to get back to you as soon as possible. Perfect. Well, thank you so much again, Simon. And thank you to everyone for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. Awesome. Thanks, Caitlin. I appreciate it. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the hosts or any of their affiliates. This podcast is for commercial and informational purposes only, is not investment advice, and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending any securities or cryptocurrencies, nor is this an offer or sale of a security or cryptocurrency.